from my home studio. Welcome to Evolve, groundbreaking Jewish conversations. You have to believe in your own capacity to make change, and you have to believe in change. The change is possible, and I believe it is among people. I'm your host, Brian Schwartzman, and today I'll be speaking with Sally Gratch, and we'll be discussing her Evolve essay, Project Kesher, Supporting Jewish Life in Ukraine and the Former Soviet Union. Today, once again, with me for the introduction is my friend and executive producer, Rabbi Jacob Staub. Uh, Jacob, how, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, and I'm really happy to be here um, to connect with this podcast and Sally. Jacob, so glad, so glad you're here. Um, good to see you virtually. Always love to see you in person, too. So Sally Gratch is an activist who, on May 21st, will be honored at the Reconstructionist Rabbinical College's graduation ceremony in Philadelphia. She'll be receiving the Keter Shem Tov Award, um, which is which is an important award for the Reconstructionist movement. You are not only a past recipient of this award, I believe in 2004, for, for many years, you were also on the selection committee deciding who received the award, and, and you also really helped design the, the very special graduation ceremony as, as we know it. So I was wondering if you could just explain a little bit about more about what this award is, what it, what it means to receive it in this, in this particular setting. And I think that's it. I'll stop. Okay. Be glad to. Um, it really is a wonderful occasion, both for the recipient and for everybody else um, who is there. The Keter Shem Tov is the highest honor, highest non-academic honor that one can receive from RRC and Reconstructing Judaism. And it's given for, um, for uh, community service work sometimes academics also, but for community service work. And I don't know who would exemplify um, community service better than Sally Gretsch. Um, you'll be ta- talking more about everything that she has done, but she is uh, a model of working for Tikkun Olam. She is a model of uh, taking care of uh, other Jewish people. And she reflects, therefore, the the, the values of the uh, of reconstructing Judaism, and um, as far as the ceremony goes, it's amazing when when uh, get called up by the president who's on the bima in the middle of graduation, and um, people applaud, and you're standing there, and the most complimentary and laudatory um, bio you've ever heard gets read to you by the president, and everybody knows that it's completely true. And um, the recognition, and much as I would have spurned it in my youth, um, is is a nice thing. So, um, and it's especially nice when the recipient is so obviously well-deserving. So I, I think it will be a lovely time at graduation. 
and we should we can do this. We should put a a, a link to stream graduation live in our on our show notes, right? Why 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 not? Yeah, Jacob. I also found uh, we'll, we'll get to it. I also found Sally's story in, inspiring. There's just so many so many problems in the world, and it's so easy to give into to despair. And and she just she just has a way about her like okay there's a problem let's let's dive into it and and it's a it's a simple message but it's a it's a powerful one i particularly um, was impressed by the walk from cleveland to new york um yeah my plantar uh i'm feeling my plantar fasciitis just just thinking about it um Mm. so yes that's a wonderful beautiful explanation today we're going to be talking about sally graff's path as an activist with her work in the anti-nuclear movement um, to her first meeting with Soviet Jews in the late 1980s and, um, and ultimately her decision to, to step back and what, what that says about leadership. Just a little more background and we'll get to it. Um, Gratch of uh, the Chicago area founded Project Kesher in 1989 to support a growing uh, network of Jewish women leaders in Belarus, Georgia, Russia, Moldova and Ukraine, and uh, the idea was to empower and engage women to support Jewish life in in post-Soviet states. And this was at a time when most of the organized Jewish world was focused on getting Jews out of these places. Gratch was among those um, who was really thinking about how to folks how to help folks lead Jewish lives who wanted to stay there. Ultimately, most most Jews have have left the former Soviet Union, but but hundreds of, of thousands have, have opted to stay. Um, and of course, with the onset of, in February 2022 of the war, Russia's invasion, Project Kesher Ukraine, and by the way, we don't get into this so much, but there are several Project Kesher offshoots that became independent organizations. Project Kesher Ukraine provided food and medicine for 30,000 people distributed cash support of more than $110,000 and facilitated more than 8,000 evacuations, which is, which is really saving lives. And more recently, it's, it's working on distributing first aid rape kits. This is, this is the realities of war and the Russian invasion. These kits have Plan B emergency contraception, and it's also working with Ukrainian OBGYNs um, in obtaining and distributing both basic and critical medical supplies. Now, before we start the interview, a reminder, all of the essays discussed on this show are available to read for free on the Evolve website, which is evolve.reconstructingjudaism.org. The essays are not required reading for the podcast, but we recommend checking them out um, to get further enrichment and understanding of the issues. Thank you, Jacob. And, and by the way, we'll have um, you can find more information out about uh, Project Kesher on, uh, on in our show notes on on the on our Fireside webpage. So, okay, on to our guest, Sally Gratz. Welcome to the program. It's wonderful to have you. Thank you. Thank you, Brian. And I'm, I'm very honored to have this opportunity. Thank you for asking. And uh, Mazel Tov, Kolakavod uh, in advance on the uh, Keter Shem Tov Award, which you'll be see- getting at the Reconstructionist Rabbinical College's graduation. So 
I guess I wanted to go back and and uh, there's so much to talk about specifically with um, the former Soviet Union and Ukraine today. Um, I wanted to go back about 40 years. You, you told me a story when we talked a couple months ago off uh, off mic about uh, having a very alarming dream about nuclear annihilation and and I guess I wanted to hear about that dream and 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 what you did with it. I mean, I I I have a dream and and I tell it to my partner and and we both kind of laugh and say it doesn't make sense. Uh you had a dream and 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 changed your changed your life and 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 impacted the world. So I guess I wanted to hear how that how that happened, what what your thinking was after after waking up. Well, this happened, oh my gosh, it had to have been somewhere around 1985, and that was a time in my life where I was um, beginning to get involved in peace activism by getting signatures at markets or in front of grocery stores to... to um, abolish nuclear weapons and whatever people could do by and yet stay in their own home setting to try to change the world and keep the world from blowing up. And at the time, if you'll remember back then, 40 years ago, we were very much at odds with then Soviet Union. One night when I went to sleep, I had this dreadful nuclear dream, very vivid, where I looked and I saw this huge nuclear cloud, which was evidence that a bomb had been dropped. And all I could think of and all I could hear my saying to myself was, I'm too late. I'm too late. Mm. And the horror of that being too late when I woke up was, no, I'm not too late. There is something I can do. And, you know, as, as life goes, and I think when any of us look back over our lives, we marvel at how things just dovetail with mm. one another. When you need something, oh my gosh, something comes out of the blue. And for me, it was the recruitment for the Great Peace March for Global Nuclear Disarmament, a gathering of people who were committed to stopping uh, a nuclear war by walking from Los Angeles to Washington, D.C., walking through towns, creating a community of devoted people, devoted to nuclear disarmament and spreading the the passion of the importance of not letting this happen. And, and actually they came through Evanston and um, I found out where they were meeting. I remember looking at the different, much younger people than me sitting around um, each about to talk about what they were leaving behind to join this peace march. And I thought in my own mind, um, I'm giving up so much to join this peace march. And I 
ticked off what some of the issues were. My mother had just died, so my father was alone. Um, My daughter was about to go off to college. And thirdly, my son had um, just been diagnosed with Hodgkin's disease, one of my sons. And I thought, those are reasons for me not to go. But I really want to go. And so I listened to what other people were giving up. I couldn't believe how much more they were giving up than I. How so much more important it seemed this issue was to them. And um, to say, you know, not to surprise you, I joined the Great Peace March, but not until it actually uh, came to the Midwest because I had a contract with a job in a school that I had to, um, I had to fulfill. Um, it, it was a, a, a moving community where we dragged everything from porta potties to kitchens to um, sinks on wheels for washing up. Um, an amazing group of people camped out every night And everybody had a job, and the job I chose, and here again is the connection to Judaism, I decided that what I wanted to do on this march was to connect with uh, Jewish communities as we walked along the road, which meant getting in touch with synagogues. This was before cell phones. My connection was with Arthur Waskow and Jeff Dacro at the Shalom Center. You all know him well. And um, uh, Rabbi Arthur, Arthur Waskell has been on this podcast, actually. So, Oh, really? <laughs> Not a surprise. Not a surprise. He belongs on this podcast. Um, and um, so without cell phones, I would look for telephone booths and I would call in to find out as we approached a town, say Youngstown, Ohio, I would call and find out what are the synagogues that would be somewhere close to the march route? And then I would be responsible for getting in touch with those synagogues and making arrangements to connect up with them at their Friday night services and bring with me a group of Jews from the Peace March. And it it was just remarkable. I, you have to understand, and you probably know that When you're with like-minded people, you think you can do anything, and you think that what you believe, everyone else is sure to believe. But anyway, so that's really how it started, um, was realizing that if if I was so horrified that that bomb really did explode over Wisconsin— and I maybe could have prevented it in a dream, then in real life, I could do it too. I guess related to that, but I wanted to ask because you you faced probably what all of us face, you know, to some level in our daily in, in deciding whether to get involved in some level in, in a, in a social justice cause is we have, we have people who are, reliant on us. We have, we have obligations, you know, we have jobs. Um, you know, how do you make that calculation? You know, well, maybe my, my father could, could, 
do without me for a little while because this 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 cause is so important Did, or or with you it wasn't a, it wasn't a, it wasn't a choice it was i have to do this you know I, I guess i was wondering if you could offer any advice to people who might you know might be faced with that that choice or those considerations or have 10 reasons why why they shouldn't go on that march it's feeling compelled in your soul that this is part of what you need to do and you see, here's where I think um, who you are, how you're brought up, what your sense of self-belief is. And if you really believe your presence in something is more important than being somewhere else, you do it. You just do it. I know that doesn't answer it, but well, um, I... I I think I mentioned to you, I was also brought up to believe in myself because my parents believed in me. And that's, that's such an, you, you have to believe in your own capacity to make change and you have to believe in change. The change is possible. And I believe it is among people. And you got to the Soviet Union as a continuation of your work with the, with, with peace the peace. Law. Um, yeah, with different organizations, no longer the Great Peace March, but a a new peace group called International Peace Walk. And yeah. you first arrived there in the late 80s, I guess? And, and... Yeah, the first peace walk was right after the Great Peace March, 1987. And that was a peace walk to stop the war nobody wants was the tagline. Um, that was the summer of 1987, and that's where I met Svetlana Yakimenko, the woman who I eventually teamed up with in uh, the Soviet Union. And you met her in Ki in Kiev, or no? I met her um, in what is today Russia, uh, but was then the Soviet Union in the town of Solnechnogorsk. Thank you for pronouncing it so I didn't have to mangle it. Yeah. Okay. So Nechnogorsk. Yeah. Met her there. And that was, I went there on uh, the, with the backdrop of the free Soviet Jewry movement, which was get all the Jews out of the Soviet Union. They'll, they'll all be killed. There'll be another Holocaust over there. I mean, a lot of Soviet Jews wanted to get out. I mean, that's... Right, right. <laughs> I mean... But on that peace walk, wearing a Mogan David, I met a lot of Jews who said, we're not leaving. This is our home. But we don't know the first thing about being Jews. The only thing we have is Jew in our passport. So we are identified as Jews but we don't know anything about our heritage. There were Habadniks in the Soviet Union, Orthodox Jews who were trying to gather people, you know, to their beliefs. But I saw um, Jews who were not necessarily attracted to Chabad, but were interested in more about their heritage. And as I saw it, the many faces of Judaism. And, and so 
from meeting with Jews in secret because they were afraid to reveal that they were meeting as Jews in anybody's home. So you're not afraid of KGB following you at this point? or We just joked all the time. But that guy's KGB. Look at how he's looking. <laughs> oh, my gosh, yes. Yeah, KGB was all over. Yeah. And and we knew that, um, you know, some possibility of difficulty. Um, but you're with a group that's like-minded, and the empowerment is amazing. And what you feel you can do. Look, we're going down main streets. Say, just take the town of Solnechnogorsk. They clear the whole city out. They line it with people. Granted, the Soviet government probably said, you get out there and you line those streets and you hold this flag. But you see thousands and thousands of people coming out to greet you. And you feel like you can do anything because you suddenly have friends on the other side of the world. The Soviet people are becoming real. And the Jews who would come up to me, the lady with the Mogan David, and who spoke English or spoke English through a translator, were fascinated with the idea to talk to a Jewish woman who wasn't afraid to pronounce in such an overt way, her Judaism. I mean, not only was much of the organized Jewish world focused on focused on on the goal of helping Jews leave the former Soviet Union, but I mean, American policy, international diplomacy was there, and and this had been a government that that had discriminated against Jews for for decades, and and you know basically suppressed. Jewish identity so that they did know, you know, folks did know no, almost nothing when they came to right. talk to you. Did you, right. were you at all thinking why, why at all would you want to stay here when you would have a choice or did you immediately go to a non-judgmental, okay, these, these people I'm meeting need something. We need to, we need to figure out how to meet those needs. Well, there's, there's a part of my background I've not mentioned, which is that I'm a trained social worker. Right, right. <laughs> And social workers learn and believe in the importance of listening. Hmm. And so I did not go over to the then Soviet Union to tell people they ought to be leaving. I went over there to listen. And that's what I heard. Um, and it, it was that summer of 87, hearing Jews say, well, tell us then, what does it mean to be a Jew? And uh, the number, strangely enough, that was given of the number of Jews thought to be remaining in the Soviet Union was six million, six million. And when I came home, all I could think of was, my gosh, that's reaching out somehow to replace the six million we lost in the Holocaust just sitting there. And so it was, it was something I felt that, um, that couldn't be ignored, that, that you couldn't just say, get them out and decide that's what they need to do. Six million people in general were saying, 
I'm a Jew. I live over here. This is my home. I just want to know what it means to be a Jew. There it is. So how then did Project Kesher, Kesher means connection, right? How did, right. How right. did Project Kesher come into, come into being? Um, after, after the Peace Walk, um, the staff who were also people from the Great Peace March, and obviously we'd become very fast friends, um, got together and said, what are we going to do now? And we all agreed that getting arrested in Mercury, Nevada, for crossing the line onto government prop property to protest underground testing, that had to stop. That, that didn't go anywhere. That just was making a statement, getting arrested, sometimes being threatened with jail, most likely just dumped in the desert somewhere where you'd have other friends come pick you up. But, you know, we had to be more proactive than that. And peace marches and peace walks, not sure that was going to be a long-term future goal. So I remember we met in my house in Evanston. And one person came up with an idea for himself. And um, I realized um, something really beckoned me to go back to the Soviet, to the then Soviet Union. I'd made a lot of friends. Um, I had this strong desire to bring Jewish renewal to the former Soviet Union. I knew that. I didn't know how. I knew I had my friend Svetlana over there as a connection to being able to spring visas for me to get back to visit. And sort of like Hansel and Gretel who walked through the woods and dropped little pieces of hmm. food or breadcrumbs along the road so they wouldn't get lost, I felt I had little little evidence of people connections that I'd left behind of the ever so many Jews of the many towns that we walked through um, who all said, come back, come back, tell us more, teach us more. And um, I had the joint distribution committee uh, that I was in touch with because that's about connection, right? You can't do these totally, these things totally alone, who were saying there are no Jews in the small towns of the Soviet Union. They were completely wiped out. They're only in the big cities, Kiev, Moscow, Odessa, etc. And I said, no, I spent two summers going through those little towns. I met Jews. They want to know about their Judaism. Probably the first one I remember, and I was always learning from people, was um, we were in this small town, I think it was Cherkasy, and which is in Ukraine today. <clears throat> and um, the room was packed. These, these apartments were small, 
you have to realize to begin with. But but the room was packed. And I thought, oh, what a wonderful opportunity to tell them there's so many different ways to be a Jew. It isn't only orthodoxy, but it is da-da-da-da-da, you know. And so I talked and I talked. And I said, is there anything else I can share with you? And someone got up and said, very much in awe, do you realize this is the first time we have all been in the same room as Jews? And that was the significance of the moment. It was not about all my yakety yakety. And, you know, it's like, whoa, this is, this is a learning. This is a learning for me. And that's where I started. Jacob Staub here. If you're enjoying this episode, please take a moment to give us a five-star rating or leave a review in Apple Podcasts. These ratings and reviews really help other people to find out about the show, and we'd like to get up to 100 five-star ratings. Please help us out if you have a moment. We really appreciate it. All right, now back to our conversation with Sally Gratch. What did Project Kesher focus on in those early years, and how did you how did you get to women? Because it it, it seems like at some point you specifically yeah right that's that's where I was headed. Um, well, there are a couple of things. First of all, how did I get to women? Um, I would meet in small towns um, with the Jewish community and say we would meet in a factory. I have this vision of people huddled together in a room with warm coats on, still freezing cold because there was no heat. But nonetheless, we were meeting men and women. And this is the situation that happened again and again at the end of my talk. Um, the men would ask all kinds of questions. The women would ask none. From their seats, the men would raise their hands. They'd make statements. Everything would be translated. And at the end of the meeting, when it was over, the women would rush forward. And together, they just wanted to talk with me, talk, be with me, share ideas with me. Again and again and again, I saw the women are not part of this larger conversation. They are creating their own meeting with me alone. So when we went to the, this time I was with Svetlana, I remember, because it wasn't too far from Moscow, the town called Bryansk, which continues to be in Russia today. So we went to Bryansk and I said to Svetlana, I only want to meet with Jewish women today. And she was just surprised. But again, after the meeting, Somebody got up and said that famous statement, do you realize this is the first time we've met together as a group, just as Jewish women? And I'll tell you, from that point on, Project Kesher took off. It truly was about women. It was about empowering women, giving women a chance to talk, to think, to express, to connect. And... Um, it, it felt so right, even 
being back home, trying to recruit uh, funds to support the work I was doing. Um, the minute I switched to women only, it felt like it bumped up like that. I guess I don't know much about your your Jewish background. Did you feel at all self-conscious about being a, a representative of, of the Jews or, or you're like, this is, this is what, this is what this people, these people need to talk to somebody now. I'm that person. I'm, I'm going to do it. I was just totally proud of being a Jew from start to finish. My background was reformed Judaism and it wasn't until um, my husband and I joined JRC in Evanston in Oh, my gosh. Jewish Reconstructionist Community, right? Jewish Reconstructionist Congregation, right? Congregation, thank you. Yeah. Uh, when, when our kids were right ready for preschool, um, whenever that was, 1968, somewhere in there, um, I was introduced to Reconstructionism. And... Um, Instead of a much more formalized Judaism that I grew up with through my, my temple in Chicago, which was Sinai Congregation, um, JRC, without a rabbi, except maybe once every four to six weeks, student rabbis would come in from uh, the college and, and spend a weekend uh, leading services, giving lectures, interacting with people. But I was introduced to a very user-friendly Judaism. So I felt thoroughly competent and comfortable in representing myself as a Jewish woman with knowledge of what my Judaism meant. So what were, what were, what were some of the things... Um... I mean, what were some of the projects you were working on or the organization was doing in those in those first years? What was my focus? My focus was to, um, I brought Sveta to the United States to talk about being Jewish in the Soviet Union. We went up and down the East Coast to try to, try to tell people there are Jews over there and they want to know what it means to be a Jew. There's an opportunity for Jewish renewal in that part of the world. And Project Kesher can do it. And so it was my voice and Sveta's voice alone. And again, another dream. It was, I can't do this alone. I need to multiply my voice. And the only way I can do that is to bring Jewish women to the other side, American Jewish women and European Jewish women and Southeast Asian Jewish women to the Soviet Union in a conference to create a, a combined um, excitement, understanding of the situation in the Soviet Union. And by that time, uh, let me think, that was 1994. Yeah, uh, it was then no longer the Soviet Union. And so um, I remember calling uh, Svetlana. She lived in a tiny town outside of Moscow called Povorovka. 
She had no telephone. There was no phone connection at all into the town. She would have to take a train to the post office where she would initiate the call with funds I would give her whenever I was over there to call the United States to have a conversation. And um, she was not excited with the idea of a conference because she knew conferences were attended by mostly people in power, mostly men. I said, no, this, this is for the women who work in the office, not the men who run the office. And this is for women. This is just for Jewish women. Your job is to recruit 100 Jewish women from around your country, Russia, Ukraine, Belarus, Moldova, Georgia, etc. I will bring 100 women, Jewish women, from the United States. And the place that we met was Kiev, Ukraine, where I had, again, worked on how do you create confidence among people over there in an American who isn't coming with money in her pocket, but with ideas and encouragement and belief in your ability as leaders and as Jews, not Jewish women yet. I wasn't there yet. So that was the agenda of one person with, and here's where that word chutzpah comes in. It's because the, um, the Soviet Jew remote movement was still strong in this country. And, um, and I remember, um, what was it? The woman who ran the Soviet Jewry office here said, we're getting the Jews out. Anyone who remains, you can work with. She said, but there won't be any. So wouldn't that, if you, if you believed you had just spent two summers meeting Jews who were saying, I care about living here. I'm a Jew. I want to know what it means to be a Jew. Wouldn't you say, I have friends over there. They're counting on me. I need to produce for them. So how many women attended that conference and what, and what, what came out of it? 100 voices from this country who were totally empowered to talk about Project Kesher in their own communities and getting a financial base to it. The women who came from over there were totally empowered to not having gone to a conference where they sat and listened to people talk all day, but they sat in circles with translators and talked about things that each woman cared deeply about. So they had an an important experience in personal empowerment and self-discovery. And we had trips out to villages around Kiev that I knew of where I had connections, where they welcomed Americans and other uh, Jews from their country. Was that still 19? I think the conference was 1996, right? That rings a bell from from uh, okay, from so what I've seen online. Okay, so 
what came out of it was a lot of voices, a, a lot of voices than just this one voice, which is what was needed. And the explosion of the organization onto the world scene in Australia, in South Africa, in um, in Yugoslavia, in England, and even um, the chutzpah had no end. Uh, when I was organizing for the conference, somebody said to me, I'd never organized a conference before, but somebody said to me, you need a keynote speaker. You got to get somebody who really has a zing to her name. And somebody said, oh my gosh, Alice Shalvey from Israel is in Chicago. You ought to get in touch. I'd never been in touch with Alice Shalvey. I'd heard the name, but I called her and I said, I'm organizing an international conference of Jewish women in Kiev, and I'd like you to be the keynote. And Alice said, I don't know who you are. I don't know what you're doing, but I'll come and I'll bring a delegation from Israel. And that happened again and again and again. It was so on track and it was so exciting. Blue Greenberg was another. Somebody uh, said- Get Orthodox Green Jewish feminist, right? That's right. Blue Greenberg came, yeah. I. I hate to jump ahead, but 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 hearing Kiev and, and and Ukraine mentioned so much, it's it's hard for the mind not to go to where what is what is happening there today. I, I know you're not involved in a day to day basis like you used to be because Project Kesher has grown to be much bigger than a couple person shop. But but can you talk at all about what what the organization is doing today to help to help Jewish women there? I'd really love to. Um, the foundation of Project Kesher has been to develop a grassroots network to help women connect with one another, to express what their needs are as Jewish women, and um, to appreciate the fact that not only Jewish women are important in their lives, but non-Jewish women as well, as they call it, their non-Jewish sisters. So this incredible grassroots network from the get-go was developed within Project Kesher in the uh, then former Soviet Union. Um, that grassroots network has been the lifeline to saving lives today in Ukraine because, and not just for Jewish women, non-Jewish women and their families as well, because women are connected. Without connection, you can't save a life. You can't know what's needed. If people are connected, they can let you know. If people have resources, they can get the resources where they need to be. And that's where Project Kesher's strength is today. They continue to track where women in their network are, no matter where they land, outside of Ukraine, outside of the former Soviet Union. And so my hope 
that the concept of Project Kesher, Jewish women working together to build stronger lives, not only as women, but as Jewish women, is actually going to come to fruition because we have our leaders now in Poland, in, I'm trying to think, in, in England. And these are, these are women who um, were doing outstanding work before this war began and continue to do outstanding organizing, organizing work in the countries where they've landed. And, and, and I would like to add that um, just based on why I am, I've stepped back as founder, because I believe strongly that if an organization, and I'll say a women's organization, can be strong and endure, it needs to have new leadership. And with a founder always in the background, that leadership's not going to emerge. The founder needs to become a support to the system, but not um, a key pin. So there are amazing younger leaders in Project Kesher today. How difficult has you has it been for you to see, read about, see the devastation in, in places where you spent so much time and, and have so much connection? Exactly. As we read in the newspaper, yet another city that's been totally destroyed. Um, unbelievable. Uh, inhumane. The Fortunately, in this country, we don't know war, but you can you can feel the impact of war when you know that town and you knew it. There's, there's a town called Uman that was just recently bombed, and it's uh, also the birthplace of Reb Nachman of Bratslav, whose, um, whose home we once visited. Uh, and, right, and there's an Orthodox pil- pilgrimage there, at least there was, I think, before right. the before the war started uh, to right, the gravesite. Right, right. Yeah, that's in Uman. Yeah. Some people consider Rabbi Nachman a, a, a forerunner of modern Jewish literature and connect 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 him to Kafka. So um yeah. not not just not just for the for the Orthodox. Um so how I mean obviously there's there's this terrible war which has disrupted everything, but can 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 you give us some sense of 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 the impact that that Project Kesher has has made in on Jewish life in countries that are actually at war with each other? When you think about Belarus, Russia, and 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 Ukraine, right? That's the sad part is that these are women who were friends with one another and now are yes at war with one another. Um, it's, uh, as my friend Svetlana has said, with Russia back on the, um, the monster platform, uh, we're right back where we started from with our two countries, Russia and the United States, that all of our efforts to bring countries together seem to have slipped through our fingers. But um, I think that uh, what Project Kesher has done so well during this war is it's recognized what happens to women in war 
and how can we help them? And issues like how do you prepare women for the probability or even inevitability of rape? Wow. What do you do to help women talk to their daughters about that? How do you how do you help women dealing with general hygiene, monthly hygiene during war? What how can you help them continue with that? Um, these are issues that have never been in the forefront of uh, women in war. We know women get raped, but what does a rape kit look like? How do you make it? In How do you distribute it? Um, and beyond that, how do you keep families together? How do you take care of general human needs? How do you keep people warm? Um, and, and being an organization that doesn't work solo, who are the players on the scene, for example, in real estate who are um, finding office buildings empty while families are without homes? How do you work with real estate agencies to help con convert those offices into shelters for homeless people? How do you do fundraising around purchasing generators to um, continue to supply electricity, which means heat and water to homes and institutions where electricity has been discontinued through bombing. So it's about really getting into the guts of war and how do you how do you sustain people? If you have a network that goes beyond your grassroots network, but goes right into the community itself, which Project Kesher has, you can do it. And you, whereas you had a grassroots network for Jewish renewal, there's now a grassroots network to save lives. Coming back to, to Sally Gratch, the activist, I mean, you mentioned that the reality is tensions between the U.S. and Russia are as high if now, if not higher than they were in, in, in the 80s toward, toward the end of the Cold War. And, you know, nuclear armament, which, which maybe had fallen off the radar, is sort of back as a, as a big concern now, whether it's Russia, whether it's North Korea, whether it's Iran. Do, do, do you ever... Do you ever get your, your your optimism or your or your chutzpah dented where where we're not you know think or you know we're not making any difference or 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 or, or if not how do you how do you maintain um, sustainable optimism? Um, that's a great question because I have I the optimism has not left, nor the hope. That's not been dampened. It's perhaps challenged. And um, I see groups reorganizing, rethinking, remobilizing. I think this is the yin and, yin and yang of life. We just have to um, 
believe in ourselves and our power to bring change and others to join us in that effort. Any other advice you would give to somebody somebody starting out in, in activism, wanting wanting to make a difference either in their local community or with people in communities halfway across the world? Yeah, I would say don't hesitate to do what your heart tells you to do because it may feel like, oh my gosh, do that? Yes, do that. And only when you get to my age, look back and connect the dots and they will connect. They will connect. But wait till you hit your late 80s and you'll look back and you'll say, yeah, that worked. That made sense. And don't hesitate. Do it. Sally, thank you for a wonderful conversation and and. Thank you for all you've done on on behalf of of, of Jewish Jewish communities and and for the your words today and I'm uh, I'm glad you'll you'll have the chance to um, to have your to have your work recognized by by a movement that you're that you're part of. Thank you for giving me this opportunity. I I just hope you know when I as you get older, what you really want to do is serve by example. And um, to share that example is important. And thank you for putting it out there. I appreciate it. And thank you for your example. So what did you think of today's episode? We want to hear from you. Evolve is about curating meaningful conversations, and that includes you. Send me your questions, comments, feedback, whatever you've got. You can reach me at bschwartzman.reconstructingjudaism.org. That's my real email address. We'll be back soon with an all-new episode. Aval, Groundbreaking Jewish Conversations is executive produced by Rabbi Jacob Staub and edited by Sam Walks. Our theme song, Ilufinu, is by Rabbi Miriam Margols. This show is a production of Reconstructing Judaism. I'm Brian Schwartzman, and I'll see you next time.